Welcome back, folks, to episode nine. And this episode is going to be quite interesting for you, Peter, because you've been dying to talk about Audrey Walsingham since season one. And here we are in episode nine, one more already than the previous season. As we've looked at before, Audrey is one of those four people clearly identified in the sonnets, particularly Sonnet 81, by virtue of its connection to George Chapman's dedication of his version of Hero and Leander. So it seems that Audrey Walsingham is quite central to our podcast. Who is this lady and why should she be so important? Well, what a question. And this is something that you're quite right. I've been waiting to talk about because Audrey really is the mystery lady, in my mind, of the entire sonnet sequence. Let's take a look at what Audrey's career was like when we meet her in the sonnets. The first time, I'm thinking, was in, in sonnet number 40. And then we find out who she really is in sonnet 81. But during that time and shortly thereafter, if you look at the history of what was going on in the court of Elizabeth and in the court of King James, Audrey Walsingham pops up very frequently. She was married to Thomas Walsingham, I believe, in 1594. We don't have the actual record of this. But we do know that Thomas was knighted that year and that their son was born in that year. And when we're looking at the sonnets, we don't see any indication uh, that this person is on the scene, at least in connection with Thomas, before what we would observe to be the 1594 year after Marlowe has left London in 1593. So the evidence seems to support that theory. Now, she became a mistress, the lady of the queen's bedchamber, mistress of the robes in 1594. And she has been recorded as traveling with the queen and staging an entertainment for the queen at the Countess of Derby's mansion in Hatfield in 1599. So she had that length of tenure with the queen and was counted upon as one of her central companions, let's say. It's hard to call a person of this nature uh, an advisor, but the queen keeping these ladies close to her is obviously going to have conversations with them. So there you go. If Audrey had political acumen, she had the access to make her views known. She was... At the same time, during this period, she was a business associate of Ingram Freiser, who was the man claimed to have stabbed Marlowe through the eye in the incident at Deptford. Now, here is this woman with connections to the Queen, keeping a close eye and a business relationship with Ingram Freiser. She has him actually managing properties that she's received as gifts from the crown. Simultaneous with this, she has been given a cipher to communicate with Robert Sidney, who was head of the English garrison in Flushing. And when we have talked about Marlowe and where did he go after he escaped from Deptford, what would be the most logical place? It seems as if 
he would have gone very quickly to Flushing, where he'd already been once before. We know that. And he may or may not have checked in with Robert Sidney, who was head of the garrison there. But Sidney was taking orders from Lord Burley, the Secretary of State. And Lord Burley must have been part of what organized Marlowe's escape because Dame Eleanor Bull was part of his retinue. And so those connections are clear. And now you have Audrey communicating with the head of the garrison. And if there was going to be any communication back and forth between Flushing and London, it may very well have been going through Audrey's hands. And then she, simultaneous with this, has become close friends with Lord Burley's son, Robert Cecil, who by this time in 1593, and actually in 1592, I believe he was named to the Privy Council, ahead of the Earl of Essex, which didn't please him at all. So now Audrey has connections to the Queen, connections to Lord Burley, who died in 1598, and connections to his son and following through. When the Queen died in 1603, Audrey had already made embassies to the court of King James in Scotland, and she'd made friends with Anne of Denmark, his wife, and when they subsequently took the reins of power in London, Audrey became, again, a close mistress to Queen Anne. And in keeping with her abilities as a stage manager, uh, she appeared in a number of masks written by Samuel Daniel and Ben Johnson, to name but a few. And she was a close uh, associate with Queen Anne and Robert Cecil, who subsequently by then became Lord Salisbury and was Secretary of State. So this is a very significant person, Miss Audrey Walsingham. If we're saying that sonnets 40, 41, and 42 are memorializing her marriage to Thomas, this is no small thing. You actually make her sound like the female equivalent of William Shakespeare. <laughs> Yes, but on a, a slightly more serious note, does this not illustrate perfectly how it is his story, not her story? When people write books, write biographies, write their dissertations for their doctorates, etc., if a male courtier had as much influence and presence with two monarchs as Audrey Walshingham appears to have done with Elizabeth and then subsequently Queen Anne. We would have half a shelf of books about him. But as far as I know, there is no published biography of Audrey Walshingham. And in fact, if you search JSTOR, there's virtually nothing. She's all but invisible. Sure, she appears as a footnote in various general histories, but there is no detailed work that I'm aware of on her life. Yeah, it's annoying that there is so little known about Audrey, and especially in the context of the story that we're researching here, I think almost, you know, not to blame it on the man, but if Marlowe hadn't had to have such a secret life, it might have been easier for people to investigate Audrey. There might have been more of a paper trail to follow. It strikes me as very odd that we haven't been able to identify a portrait of a woman who was married to a knight who was a very significant member of parliament 
and of the intelligence service himself. And this is a woman who had very nearly a 25-year run inside the world of the court and knew probably as much about what was going on as anyone. Well, that brings me to the next question then, because how does a person like Audrey become so powerful? I mean, how would she have access to these corridors of power? Well, okay. So the simple answer to that is Audrey was a second cousin to Queen Elizabeth, but it's much more complicated than that because there were a lot of second cousins floating around. So how did Audrey, how did Audrey gain the distinction? And part of it is just personalities and dumb luck. But her grandfather, Sir Ralph Shelton, was the third son of Sir John Shelton and Anne Boleyn, who was sister of Thomas Boleyn and aunt of Queen Anne Boleyn, mother of Elizabeth Regina. Now, just to say, Audrey, one, two, three, is linked back up the staircase and then back down again over to Elizabeth. So we can call her second cousin. But it's more complicated than that, because while that's her line of birth, her family history is really, once you dig into it, it's really kind of striking. The first thing that you realize when you're looking into this is, is that Audrey never knew her mother. Her mother died in childbirth with Audrey. And her father, Ralph Shelton, had already had five children with Audrey's mother, Mary Woodhouse Shelton. He had already had five children with her when she died giving birth to Audrey. So there's this entire group of children of which Audrey was the youngest and the only one not to know her actual mother growing up in the Shelton household. Then Sir Ralph married again, another woman named Anne Barrow, and he had six children with her. All the Eight. other children from the prior marriage prospered and moved on. Audrey was left with a stepmother who was, practically speaking, was pregnant for every year she was married to Ralph. She had children every single year for the next eight years, and Audrey was taking care of those children from the age of five forward. So then Audrey's father dies in 1580, and Audrey's stepmother then marries a man named Cornwallis. Now, Cornwallis had a son by a previous marriage as well. He doesn't have any children with Audrey's stepmother, but Audrey is now in a household ruled by two people to whom she's unrelated by blood. And she spends the rest of her time up until 1592, apparently just taking care of the children at Shelton Hall. Now, somewhere in this period, Elizabeth travels to Shelton Hall and takes residence there because she's not so much on the run from, but definitely needs to steer clear of Bloody Mary, her sister, who had become queen. And of course, as it was true in Elizabeth's reign, there are a lot of people running around saying somebody else should be queen. 
when Bloody Mary was queen, they were trying to replace her with a Protestant, and the Protestant would have been Elizabeth. And if Elizabeth had gotten out of line, she might have ended up as Mary Queen of Scots with her head chopped off. So she needed a place, a safe house of residence, and that safe house was the Shelton household. This took place before Ralph died and before Cornwallis took hold of the household. So it was effectively the Shelton household that she stayed in and may have come to know Elizabeth during that time as a little girl. So we come to 1592. Now Audrey is 24 years old. She's been living very quietly at Shelton Hall, taking care of her mother's children, her stepmother's children. And then her stepmother passes away. So it's now time for Audrey to come out on her own. And this is the journey she's made up until we think it might have been possible for her to meet Christopher Marlowe and subsequently definitely met Thomas Walsingham. Can I just ask a question? The Cornwallis is, is that the same family that Thomas Watson was tutor to in the early 1590s, where he got involved with that ridiculous affair of the marriage contract? You know, that's a good question. You know something? I don't have an answer to that. That's definitely a trail I'm going to follow down. To, to me, Cornwallis has always been, because I'm an American, I'm thinking of him as somehow the progenitor or ancestor of General Cornwallis, you know, who faced off against George Washington. But that's not impossible at all. That's, wow, that would really close the circle. Yeah. Well, and you always have to bear in mind that the sort of aristocracy stroke upper gentry is really a very small number of people. Yeah. So it's never amazing when somebody knows somebody because you're talking about a really very small group of people. So yeah, it's like a little village. Yeah. yeah. And when you consider the prevalence of widowhood and remarriage, the connections become a very tangled web at times. Yeah, yeah, so what you're suggesting really is that possibly Thomas Watson could have introduced Audrey to Thomas Walsingham. Ooh, and Watson was married to Polly's sister, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which was another man who was in the room in Deptford. Oh, this is so cool. Yeah. I mean, if any of the, if this is true, then the, yeah, it's high time we had a biography of Audrey Walsingham <laughs> because she is a player. And wow, that, that family, because notice what happens with Cornwallis. He's sort of hanging around and he suddenly gets appointed when James comes in to be ambassador to Spain. And then he becomes head of a treasury for Henry II. And if Henry II hadn't died at 16, he may have gone on to even larger duties. Do you think it would be worthwhile drawing up a family tree for Audrey and popping it on the website? Well, I definitely can have a go at it. I think maybe you want to take a look at it when I'm done, and then we can, we can try to put that together. I would like to run down this Cornwallis thing with Watson. That is a fascinating, it just never occurred to me to, to look at that, so I will. But... We're, we're looking at a woman who had all of these mysterious connections to all of these people who, if Marlowe had survived into 1594 and beyond, which 
seems pretty clear he was there in 1598 to write the rival poet sonnets. If he had needed to communicate back to England, he would have done it, or it certainly would have been convenient for him to do it through Robert Sidney. We have the travels of Poli and Drury going back and forth as couriers. So there's the means. And Audrey would have the interest, even if we only said that it was through Sir Thomas, who has connections to the intelligence service. But Audrey obviously has connections of her own. And if she's given this, I don't think she's just given it to keep in her little jewelry box. I think she's been given it to use it. And I always think as well, the the Fraser connection, it's such an odd thing, because if you take the conventional explanation to be the truth, how does that possibly fit with Fraser's subsequent history? If Fraser was working for Audrey Walshingham, and we know he was, and if Fraser had murdered Marlowe, but yet Audrey Walshingham had Marlowe's posthumous, well, it isn't posthumous, but we'll say it is posthumous hero, hero and Leander dedicated to her. How can that possibly fit together? It makes no sense. Yeah, it doesn't. It's very hard it, to it's very hard it's, to square that, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. If I can draw a very poor analogy, it's a little bit like Jack Ruby. You can go on with the <laughs> the book depository and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then Jack Ruby shot Oswald, and you think, but why? You know, how can this possibly fit with the official story? It can't. And I think Fraser is a bit like that as well. How can he be working for Audrey Walshingham, to whom the the hero and Leander is dedicated, if he murdered Marlowe? It makes no sense. If you're going to say, well, you know, she approved it, she had a hand in it, she agreed with murdering Marlowe, but then exactly how does then... Chapman get the chutzpah to turn around and dedicate a co-publication of his version and Marlowe's version together. I mean, that's not exactly going to please the woman who, you know, gave her blessing to the murder of the man who wrote that poem. That doesn't make any sense at all. Chapman would have had to be spectacularly ignorant of the facts. At least as ignorant as Shakespeare would have to be in order to write Venus and Adonis. (laughs) And and spectacularly emotionally numb. I just can't envisage anybody being so lacking in the basic perception of human relationships to think that you would dedicate a poem written by somebody to the person who commissioned his murder. Yeah, you'd really have to be Mao. You know, you really have to be somebody who is so cynical that I love his poetry now that he's dead. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think what I really like about this series is that we end up finding out more new things together as a group rather than sort of pre-scripting things. Let us remind ourselves that not only was Thomas Jr., a member of the Privy Chamber of Prince Henry. And her stepfather, Cornwallis, was the treasurer of Prince Henry's accounts. In addition to this, George Chapman, who is associated with Audrey, he receives or is given a promise of an annuity and a flat-out payment of 300 pounds when he was to have completed his translation of the complete works of Homer. 
So that's the third person that we have now who is very close to Prince Henry in the court in which Audrey is very tight friends with Anne of Denmark, Prince Henry's mother. Unfortunate for Chapman is the fact that when Prince Henry died, the family refused to acknowledge Henry's gift. So Chapman didn't get his 300 pounds, even though he finished his translation about two years after Henry died, you know, and he dedicated it to Henry. And still, he doesn't get his money and he doesn't get his annuity. And by then, I think even Audrey had had enough of him. And so Chapman is kind of, you know, left hung out to dry like every good poet. But for a period of time, when Henry was looked upon as the heir apparent, Audrey had three people positioned very close in his circle to carry forward in the time when, if Henry was to be king, that would have been the future. She was definitely moving her cards in the right direction. And as Carol says, I mean, if this was a man, we'd know an awful lot more about what was going on with him. And we should also point out that Salisbury's wife, Catherine Howard, it's her sister who became involved with the first lover of James. That then became a huge scandal, the Howard scandal. And you have this whole issue carrying on in 1613. And Audrey would have been right in the middle of that. This is the Overbury poisoning affair? Yes. 1612 it was, I think. Yes. Because it took place before uh, Cecil died. And then subsequently, that whole crew was pushed aside because Villers comes in. And even at that point, then Audrey starts to lose, you know... Young Henry has passed away. Cecil has passed away. A lot of her connections and levers of power have disappeared. And Villers appears and takes over as Earl Buckingham. And the next thing you know, a whole new set of scandals arises, which Audrey has nothing to do with. But throughout the period, up until the middle of the of 16-teens, Audrey is so significant. Her plans are moving forward very nicely and this is a woman who, at one point in time, was the housemaid to a stepmother and stepfather. And in her own home, she was taking care of someone else's children. Imagine this. And then somehow ends up at Wilton House, friends with Mary Sidney, and meets Christopher Marlowe, which I think we will talk about in our next episode. Thank you once again, Peter and Carol, for the fascinating insights into the Elizabethan era. In our next episode, we will delve further into Audrey Walsingham's life and her roles through the sonnets. We're quite sure that your eyes and your ears will be widely opened by what else we can find hidden in plain sight.